and thank you for joining me for quite excellent episode number 45. This week's poem is The Hearth by C.K. Williams, published in the New Yorker's March 2003 issue. I really cannot remember where I found this one. I know I've had it open as a tab since last September. I knew when I found it that I really liked it, that I wanted to use it. Um, But at the time, it seemed like it might be a little bit longer than what I expected to be doing with my students at the time. But after the phenomenal job my students did with Gorman's lengthy The Hill We Climb, I've been itching to share this one with class, especially since students expressed an interest in poems with narrative elements, which this poem does have. But before we get to Williams, we have to return first to A Drifting Petal by Mary McNeil Fenelosa. I grabbed a bit less analysis this week, although not for lack of available insight from my students. As ever, they are making exceedingly thoughtful and creative inferences with the material I give them, even when it is using language and structure that is maybe a little bit less familiar. No, I specifically grabbed less material from students because I was trying to grab it from them early, those completed responses from earlier in the week. I've found that if I wait until the assignment is actually due and everyone's turned in their responses, I get so excited by all the brilliance of my students that I spend kind of an unhealthy amount of time collecting material for the podcast episode, which leads to an unhealthy amount of time organizing that material, which makes the recording longer, which makes the editing take longer. I'm serious. The last two episodes each took about six hours to produce, and I might actually be lying, and it could be significantly more than that, but if I were to admit the real number, I'd have to take a look in the mirror and reevaluate my life choices. (sighs) What I'm saying is that my mental health requires me to not spend quite so much time on the podcast, no matter how much I love it. Too much time spent here means I stress on my other responsibilities, which I am sure my students can relate to. For those students who had exceedingly clever things to say, that didn't make it into this episode. I'm sorry. I really am. Uh, I promise to take a very close look at your responses next week, so long as you get them in earlier. If you can finish your responses on Tuesday, you are far more likely to be included. Okay? End of apologies. Here's the poem. A Drifting Petal, Mary McNeil Fenelosa. If I... A thirst by a stream should kneel with never a blossom or bud in sight, till down on the theme of its liquid night the moon-white tip of a sudden keel a fairy boat should dawn and float to my hand, as only the gods deserve the cloud-like curve, the loosening sheaf, the ineffable pink of a lotus leaf. I should know, I should feel, that far away on the dimpled rim of a brighter day a thought had blossomed and shaken free one sheath for its innermost soul for me. Students had some really interesting readings of this poem, Um, some that I didn't expect. I'm actually going to start with those this time. Uh, One student thought that this might be a speaker who is in a conversation with uh, God or religion, making some kind of connection there because we see the speaker bringing up God and talking about the clouds, which, of course, are associated with 
heavenly bodies. Um, and another student suggested that this drifting bloom that comes in on this stream might have a more metaphorical meaning uh, that this could be the arrival of the thoughts of someone else, thoughts that are being shared, thoughts that maybe the recipient needs to be open to. And although I'm not totally convinced that this is the way we should understand uh, the bloom as a metaphorical object, um, students were thinking thoughtfully about what it might represent and how we should understand this situation. A student says that the speaker composes a hypothetical and fantastical situation that they hope to become real. And there are specific details in there like the cloud-like curve of the boat or the loosened sheaf of grain. And this hope for something is something that a few students pointed to. That there's a, a kind of lacking in this poem, a desire for something that is not currently possessed. One of the lines that students connected to with this idea was where it says, uh, far away on the dimpled rim of a brighter day. That idea that something is off in the distance. The student says that their ideas and what she, or the speaker, thinks those future days will be like, that happiness, they see it in the ineffable pink of a lotus bloom. That's something you just can't quite describe. And this is happening in a space that is dark. This is a dark stream that has no blossoms, that has no buds. And I think the student is trying to say that this stream that is empty and kind of dark is the present, whereas this ineffable pink, brighter future uh, waits somewhere, hopefully, for the speaker. Another student says that this is a poem about a person who's alone and waiting for something to come and make them happy, but they don't really know what. And that makes sense when we think about that ineffable quality. It's, you can't really describe it. Another says, she begins a thirst by a stream, but not a living thing's in sight, not one blossom or bud. So she realizes that maybe she should not drink the water no matter how thirsty she is. And at the very least, when we see someone is a thirst or someone is hungry, or those kind of expressions, those are feelings of need, of emptiness, and in a a requirement for fulfillment that you don't currently have. And last, uh, a student suggested that it, this is a poem about how hope can break. Uh, they pointed to a line that says, a thought had blossomed and then shaken free. And the student interprets this to mean that this is a flicker of hope, but it doesn't last long enough. It breaks free and maybe floats away even. But not everyone saw this focused so much on what is missing. Certainly, most students really grabbed on to the beauty of the poem. A student says this poem emphasizes the beauty of things that we don't normally notice, with another agreeing along this line, uh, linking to the uh, poem's line that says, a thought had blossomed and shaken free. The student suggests that this person has realized a simple beauty and the significance of that petal. It, it has weight that allows it to be recognized as something that holds worth and value. A student says that petals are natural things. They're simple things. While ferry boats are these amazing things that can only be dreamt of. We 
don't actually see them. And so the student argues that by comparing something so simple with something so fantastical that we're elevating the beauty of small things, small natural things, to a height that is incomparable. And that's where we get back to that line of the ineffable pink. A student says, the speaker is in awe of something as basic as a color, proving that there is a true beauty to the natural world. Another student also pointed to this line, saying that the pink of the lotus leaf is amazing because ineffable means it's too great to be described in words. Words fail to actually capture the true depth of that beauty. And when we're talking about beauty, there, there is something kind of, I don't know, romantic to it. Um, and, and at least one student recognized that quality and says that this actually feels a kind of like Romeo and Juliet, which we are beginning in class. The imagery seems to be connected with those rich emotional experiences. Uh, not the love necessarily for another person, I think, but the feeling of connection and the recognition of beauty and being so overwhelmed by something, that's here too. And the role of creativity was not lost on students either. A student says that this ferry boat drifts into the speaker's hands. The speaker gains a compelling sense of wonder. It shows that the speaker that they have a vivid sense of imagination. Another seems to agree, saying a drifting pedal conveys the boundless imagination that makes us beings of creativity. All of us have a creative vision inside of us, and it can be shaken free in an instant. And along this line, and the, the idea about beauty is a student that says that this is a poem that conveys how even the smallest things can be considered a miracle if you have an imaginative mind. And I think that this combination of not just recognizing beauty, but taking beauty and seeing it as something that is beyond the scope of natural experience, even as it is part of natural experience, I think is, is a wonderful reading of this poem. The last thing I'm going to bring up, because I have to bring it up when it shows up, are students' comments about structure. And I had a couple of them. One noted that this is a poem that begins with a capitalized if, both letters capitalized, I-F in capital. And the student says that this seems to imply that there's a heavy emphasis on readers what the speaker is writing, but the possibility of it. It isn't a concrete, factual reality that's being described. It's a thought. It's an opportunity. It's the space for what could be. Another student points to the sound of the poem saying that it uses a rhythmic sense in its line and it provides a calming kind of whimsical vibe. And I, I see that, I hear that in the poem. It is rather pleasant. It occasionally has these nice little rhymes that don't force themselves. They're, they're not sing-songy or anything like that, but they do come along in a way that's really kind of just nice. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, a simple, pleasant niceness to the uh, the actual sound of the poem. It works with the kind of creativity and beauty that we were just talking about. I think all these ideas work really well, and if I was to add on to it, I think one thing that I would say is that this is a poem that starts with, If I, while thirsty, 
knelt down and there was nothing around and then suddenly I saw this beautiful thing floating by me. The speaker says, I should feel that far away on the dimpled rim of a brighter day a thought had blossomed and shaken free of its innermost soul for me. I think that by saying at the end that seeing something of so much beauty slowly drift toward the speaker, that recognizing that would be something that was for the innermost soul of me. It seems to be a way of saying that this creativity, that this beauty, that these things are personal gifts that are given to us. Maybe in simple things, maybe all the time, and it requires actually kneeling down and recognizing the simple joys that we can get from the world around us. And I think that's totally in line with the analysis my students have already done. Now, our next poem is The Hearth by C.K. Williams. A hearth is the base of a fireplace, or the area just in front of a fireplace that may be made of brick or tile. But in addition to this, there's a symbolic meaning here. A hearth is also related to the heart or soul of a home, traditionally, uh, likely because it's the source of its warmth and the place where families and friends would gather to stay warm together. And yet, this is a poem that transforms the hearth in a few different ways. We see it collect and destroy trash, provoke thoughts of war and injury, and yes, provide a bit of heat. But more than the way the hearth changes as different stories are told in the poem, I really enjoy William's inventive wordplay here. Because there are so many great choices here, the writing task and the secret passphrase are related. For the writing task, students are required to make at least one quotation a single word in length. Quoting individual words is an important part of close reading and analysis because it demonstrates an understanding of how specific word choices are powerful creators of tone, character, setting, theme, and more. These kinds of individual word choices are examples of diction, which is our secret passphrase. I have you using a single word quotation with this literary device because, and this is important to remember, anytime you're talking about diction, you should only be quoting the individual words that are your focus. Never quote long portions of a sentence or a whole sentence if you're exploring diction. Another fundamental rule of this literary device, students are never allowed to use the word diction without an adjective that modifies it. For example, if we were talking about Amanda Gorman's diction in The Hill We Climb, I might describe her patriotic diction, or diction that expresses hardship, or compassionate diction, or cultural diction. This is what students need to do here. When you use the word diction, consider what qualities are expressed by a few words of the poem, and find a word that describes those qualities. Here's the poem. The Hearth, C.K. Williams. Part 1. Alone, after the news, on a bitter evening in the country, sleet slashing the stubbled fields, the river ice, I keep stirring up the recalcitrant fire. 
But when I throw my plastic coffee cup in with new kindling, it perches intact on a log for a strangely long time, as though uncertain what to do, until, in a somewhat reluctant, almost creaturely way, it dents, collapses, and decomposes to a dark slime untwining itself on the stone hearth. I once knew someone who was caught in a fire and made it sound something like that. He'd been loading a bomber, and a napalm shell had gone off. Flung from the flames, at first he felt nothing, and thought he'd been spared. But then came the pain, then the hideous dark. He'd been blinded, and so badly charred he spent years in recovery, agonizing debridements, graphs, learning to speak through a mouth without lips, to read braille with fingers lavaed with scar, to not want to die. Though that never happened, he swore, even years later, with a family, that if he were back there, this time allowed to put himself out of his misery, he would. Part 2 There was dying here tonight, after dusk by the road, an owl, eyes fixed and flared, Breast so winter-white he seemed to shine a searchlight on himself, helicoptered near a wire fence, then suddenly banked, plunged, and vanished into swallowing dark with his prey. Such an uncomplicated departure, no detonation, nothing to mourn. If the creature being torn from its life made a sound, I didn't hear it. But in truth, I wasn't listening. I was thinking as I often do these days, of war. I was thinking of my children and their children, of the more than fear I fear for them, and then of radar, rockets, shrapnel, cities raised, soil poisoned for a thousand generations, of suffering so vast it nullifies everything else. I stood in the wind and the raw cold, wondering how those with power over us can affect such things, and by what cynical reasoning pardon themselves. The fire's ablaze now. Its glow on the windows takes the night even darker, but it barely keeps the room warm. I stoke it again, and crouch closer. Students, be sure to use a single word quotation and the word diction. You must use an adjective to describe that diction, or it doesn't count. These are your writing task and secret passphrase, and both are required for full credit. And don't forget about our previous writing tasks. These are good writing practices no matter what you're doing. So, consider brief summaries, short quotations, and maybe a semicolon. Avoid using the word quote at all costs, and consider using more than one quote in your sentences. A couple notes on responding to different elements of this poem, too. This is the first poem we have read that has two distinct sections. You can refer to these sections as one and two, or parts one and two. Either is appropriate. For those students who really want to show off their big brain energy, I want to point out how many lines are using something called enjambment. I've spelled it in the assignment description. This is where a line doesn't end with any kind of punctuation, and it continues on to the next line or stanza. Enjambed lines tend to create a broken feeling, 
Making an idea hang, forcing the reader to think about the word that ends the line by itself as it hangs there. It's like it's teetering on the edge of a cliff. I'm not requiring anyone to use enjambment or enjammed in their response, but doing it will likely impress the heck out of me and maybe secure a spot in the next episode. So, you know, just saying. Remember to complete your paragraph-length response by Wednesday, February 17th, 2021, and two replies to the responses of your peers by the Friday that ends the week. Your paragraph-length response should include a tag and make a claim in the opening sentence or two. And any evidence you use should be short, embedded smoothly into your sentences, and fully explained. A quick reminder about claims. They must require proof. If your first sentence just says this is a poem about a person at their fireplace, that isn't a claim. Your claim cannot be obvious. Be sure to read the assignment instructions for a full breakdown of the expectations. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, or would like our class to direct an eye toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities, and the ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 45 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, you discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent. Excellent.